Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. Today, I want to move forward in history. We've been hanging out for the last three episodes with the 4th century poetics of St. Gregory Nazianzus. I'm feeling a little wistful for the 20th century, and so today I want to talk a little bit about a poem by Marianne Moore, a very important modernist poet who we haven't touched on yet in this podcast, and probably her most famous poem, famous not just because it's a good poem, but because it is a statement by a poet about poetry that is rather surprising, in fact. This poem is called Poetry. It was written in the early 1920s, published in 1924 by Marianne Moore. Uh, A little background about Moore before we jump into the poem. Moore was born in 1887, uh, just a year before T.S. Eliot, and had a good long life. She died in 1972. And next to Eliot and Ezra Pound, Moore is one of the most important American modernist poets. She's often seen as not as important as them to the point that she's eclipsed from the canon. But in fact, Moore was very highly regarded by both Eliot and Pound. She was the editor of the important and influential Dial Journal in the 1920s, which was a bastion of modernist poetry. And her poetry rivals Pound's and Eliot's for both difficulty and beauty, and beauty because of difficulty, and difficulty because of beauty. Hopefully that will become more clear as we look at this poem by her. This poem has a weird history. I'm going to read you the original version of it, and then I'm going to read you the later version of it that Moore edited for her collected poems uh, many years after the original 1924 version. So here's, here's the original version. It's just titled Poetry. I, too, dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise, if it must. These things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand, the bat holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat, elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea, the baseball fan, the statistician. Nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry, nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. 
In the meantime, if you demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry in all its rawness and that which is on the other hand genuine, you are interested in poetry. This is very far as a poem from the sonnets we've looked at, certainly very far from uh, the form of St. Gregory with his iambic hexameter. But lest you think that I just read you a couple paragraphs of prose, if you look at this poem on the page and start counting the syllables of each stanza, there are one, two, three, four, five stanzas, you will notice that there is a strict number of syllables in each line which corresponds to each other line in each other stanza. There's not a regular meter, but there's a strict mathematical proportion of lines and syllables in each stanza. This is something Moore was known for. If you read her poetry out loud, it often sounds very complex, almost to the point of being rather academic. But if you start counting, you'll notice that she's absolutely precise in her syllabification in each line. To the point where sometimes she'll even stop in the middle of a phrase or even in the middle of a word and cut off a word at the end of a line because she only allowed herself 13 syllables in that line. And she'll put the rest of the word on the next line. Moore is a weird formalist. She is a formalist, but she's a strange one. She isn't as interested in regular meter as she is in mathematical structure. She's also interested in this poem in meditating on the place of poetry in human life. And that's what I want to look at as we think about this poem line by line. So let's, let's start with the beginning. Very famous, very famous opening. Uh, in fact, like a lot of Moore poems, there's an important relationship between the title and the first phrase in her first line. Every once in a while, the title of a poem will actually be the noun which is in the subjective case in that sentence. So you'll actually have to read the title along with the first line to actually make a coherent grammatical sentence. Here it's not quite that. She's giving us the topic that she's then going to reference in her first pronoun in the, in the objective case. It's weird when we talk about Moore, all of a sudden we start sounding as technical as she in trying to understand her poem. So she says, poetry, I too dislike it. What's it? Well, it is poetry. I too dislike poetry. It's always a little weird when you start reading an artist writing about their art and they let you know that they don't even like it. But this isn't more just saying, oh, I don't like this poem I'm writing or, oh, I don't like uh, the poems I've written lately. This is poetry. I too dislike it. There's a weird assumption here that her reader has or might affect to have already a disdain or dislike for poetry. She's almost chumming up to us as hostile to the whole art that we're encountering and saying, yeah, I don't really like it either. It's also, of course, a joke. When an artist walks up to you and says, oh, art, can't stand it. I think we're supposed to see that there's at least some irony going on here. Poetry, I too dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. 
So this is written in 1924. I don't know how common a term fiddle would have been in 1924 to refer to something like uh, nonsense or triviality. But regardless, she's affecting kind of a general 20th century casual hand-waving language. Uh, there are things that are more important than this. This is, this is kind of rubbish. This is fiddle. Why do this at the beginning of a poem? Well, like a lot of more poems, which are often quite funny, it puts us at ease. It puts us in a chummy relationship with her. Now, what she hasn't yet shown us that she's doing is she's putting the syllabification of this first line, I too dislike it, there are things that are important beyond all this fiddle, she's purposefully writing in exactly the same amount of syllables that she's going to be writing the first line of each subsequent stanza. So even in telling us that this is not very important, she's taking even the number of syllables incredibly importantly. Reading it, however, in the next line, she says, reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Ah, she's now turned things on their head. First, she intensifies dislike. She said, I dislike it. Uh, it's fiddle. There are way more important things. And then she says, reading it with a perfect contempt for it. We're now at contempt for poetry. We're not at just dislike. We're at perfect contempt. She says, okay, read it contemptuously. Reading it with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. This is an odd type of language, and it's something I love about Moore, that her language becomes so abstract, so heady, that it seems to almost have a music of abstraction, a music of heady, academic almost academic politeness. One discovers it, after all, a place for the genuine. She could have just said, one discovers, hey, it's not so bad after all. On, but no, she has to be even more erudite sounding about it. One discovers it in it, after all, a place for the genuine. It was called fiddle before, it was treated with contempt before, but perhaps there's genuineness in it. And then she gives us a gives us examples of that genuineness in the next few lines. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise. If it must, these things are important. Not because A, and after that A, there's a stanza break, because we're at the end of that number of syllables and that number of lines, and so we have to move to the next stanza, even though it's breaking off right in the middle of a grammatical unit, she doesn't care. In fact, I think she's kind of winking at us. She's saying, I'm meditating on whether poetry is worth it, and I'm going to stop halfway through a phrase to break into a new poetic unit because that is what my form demands. These things are important, namely the hands that can grasp, the eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise, these things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. So she's getting really practical with us. She's saying, I'm not saying that poetry is important because it can be made to sound highfalutin, because it can be made to sound intellectual, but because it's useful. What things are useful? Well, hands that can grasp, 
eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise. These are physical responses to art and poetry. People often talk about, oh, I was so scared reading that scene in that horror novel that the, my hair was standing on end. Or, ah, yes, I teared up at that, at that stanza of that poem. In class earlier with our Old Testament students, we were talking about poetry, and some poems were read in class, and some people even teared up. Far from that being something that we only do in leisure time because we don't have anything useful to do, Moore seems to be saying, actually, that is useful. Those physical, emotional responses are useful to us. But, ever the one to be balanced in her language, she then goes on to say, when they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. This is especially interesting that she's saying this in a poem that's published in 1924, because in 1922 and 23, two very important works of modernist literature are released upon the public, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses and T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and both Ulysses and The Wasteland were sometimes accused of being so opaque, so intellectual and complex and academic with such obscure references that in the end they were just unintelligible. And Moore is here conceding that, that sometimes art can become unintelligible, and in fact we can't admire it if we can't understand it. This seems to be not leaving room for something that I think a lot of times we struggle with, especially in college literature programs. We think, oh, if I can't understand it, I should admire it because I should admire how complex it is. Moore is a little more down to earth, and this is actually something that continues throughout her whole career. Moore had a all-American, blue jeans wearing, sneakers wearing, baseball loving attitude to her, especially in public. She was known for walking down the street in New York City where she lived uh, wearing a long blue coat and a tri-corner hat of the style that the American revolutionaries are often painted wearing. Uh, she was a strange lady. She loved baseball and she went to baseball games all the time. She There's a great picture of her, I think from the 1950s or 60s, with Muhammad Ali. Apparently they struck up a little friendship. So. Moore has this weird duality about her where in her poetry, especially in this poem very famously, her, po her language is complex, her references are complex. There are even lines in here where she puts quotation marks around a phrase that it took critics decade to, decades to figure out who she's quoting, and it turns out to be some obscure European philosopher. But yet she also has this all-American down-to-earth, hey, if you can't understand it, it's not going to be useful to you, attitude that she's expressing here and that she expressed in public. More like Eliot, who was also a bundle of contradictions, is a poet of the 20th century who plays around with different registers of language and different attitudes toward the art that she's participating in, the art that she's creating and commenting on at the same time. Let's, let's keep going. She says, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. And I'm going to read now a long list that actually goes uh, for more than a, a stanza 
of images, the bat holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat, elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree. Those are beautiful images. Those are the images I think that we might more expect from a poem. She's given us all these strange considerations about the nature of poetry twisted around a demanding syllabic form. And now she's giving us images from nature, one after another. She's kind of showing off here a bit. She says, oh, you think I'm only going to speak in prosaic abstractions? No, look, there's a horse, there's a wolf, there's an elephant and a bat. I love the bat. Sometime in a future podcast, we should look at some of Moore's poems about animals. She has a great longer poem about an octopus. Um, which is just fantastic. Moore is showing off here, but she's also showing us the kind of things that poetry can be about. She takes an interesting turn after she describes the tireless wolf. A tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea, the baseball fan, the statistician. All of a sudden we move from images, odd images, I might add, of animals to images of humans that are a little animal-like. She even uses a very explicit simile comparing a critic, I assume that would be a literary critic, after all, this is a poem that is flirting with the act of literary criticism itself, the critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea. This is wonderful because she herself is slightly a critic that's like a horse that feels a flea. That flea would be poetry. Maybe that flea would also be the detractors from poetry. She's turned us into critics. We are now imagining different possibilities of subjects of poetry or approaches to poetry and have been given some examples of the types of poetry that fail. That failing is the feeling of a flea. The implication is the baseball fan. I love that there's a baseball fan hanging out here. The statistician. Now the statistician, of course, is one who cares about numbers, one who cares about quantification and quantification over time and patterns in quantification. And as a formalist in this poem, Moore herself is a statistician of stanzas. She herself is creating patterns that repeat over time that if we're careful, we can count out and track. Nor is it valid, she continues. <laughs> it's great. After the word the statistician, there's an M dash. She doesn't even give us a period. She says, oh, I'm actually gonna add something to this terribly run on sentence that I have already been extending out from two stanzas ago. Nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. Now she's bringing in other types of written material. We shouldn't discriminate against those. In fact, maybe those are the type of things that someone would say are among those things that are more important than the fiddle that is poetry, business documents and school books. And she reiterates then, all these phenomena are important. That word phenomena, I wanna pause with it. She's using the language of academics, but also the language of science. And she kind of been, has been doing so throughout the whole poem. All these phenomena are important. She sounds like a textbook. A poet who can sound like a textbook when they want to, 
but can move away from that easily and deftly when they want to is a poet who has an incredible range. One of the things that I think should be stressed, especially to younger poets, poets who are getting started out in their craft, is to practice different registers of speech. Can you write like a textbook? Can you mimic it? Try it. If all you can do is mimic a Shakespearean old-fashioned style, your poetry is going to be very limited in its scope and in the end in its subject. If you can mimic styles, if you can practice imitation of many different registers, the better you'll be as a poet. Aristotle, of course, said this. Poetry is, in essence, an imitation in words within rhythmic and harmonic form. And here we come back to more showing the possibilities that are inherent in a poet who is able to mimic many, many types of registers. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. This, this is proceeding now like a philosophical paper. Ah, but I would like to make a further distinction. Making distinctions is very scholastic. We often find in St. Thomas Aquinas and in his uh, pagan classical Greek philosopher hero Aristotle, distinctions upon distinctions upon distinctions that are somehow kept all clear from one another through careful language. She is mimicking this as well. She says, one must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry. She's warning against a uh, what we might call uh, poetasters, uh, those who would affect poetry or pretend poetry, or maybe be only half-apprenticed in poetry. I think you could read that half-poets in several different ways. We talked about with Gregory the importance of seeing apprenticeship in the craft of poetry as primary, especially for a poet starting out, but also for a poet who keeps going. There's something a little bit sad about a poet who worked very hard on their first collection or two, and now that anyone will publish them because they've got famous or they've won awards, they then start putting out very lazy work. We see this with musicians all the time. They work really hard to get out a first album or two, and then once they have the money and the success, they start churning out music that's more and more boring, more and more simple with diminishing returns. When that's done to poetry, the result is not poetry, she's saying. All right, let, let's look at the, these final thoughts for us. Nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. It, once again, this brilliant, it meaning poetry. This it is the same it as in the first line of the poem. It is poetry. What do we want? We want literalists of the imagination, she says. We want people who can write poems that give us imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to what in the world she's talking about here. As far as I can tell, what seems at least to be going on here is more saying that we want poets who can use language so literally with such detailed description, and I would say probably detailed form, that 
when we're imagining a garden because it's being described to us in a poem, the toads in it seem so well described in such perfect form that they seem real to us, that we believe that there's a real toad in that garden that's being described that we know is imaginary. There's more to say about that. And in fact, if, if you want a, a fun afternoon, look up critical debates on what imaginary gardens with real toads in them means. That's also in quotation marks, and people argue about where she got that idea. But at the very least, I would say what she's pushing for is a use of language such that the reality of the described thing, the reality of the imitated thing, even if it's something as small as a toad, is so precise and so vivid that it becomes an important experience to us, even a believable experience to us. All right, final lines and then we'll wrap up. In the meantime, if you demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry in all its rawness and that which is on the other hand genuine, you are interested in poetry. That genuine calls back to the first stanza where she says, reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. If poetry is a place for the genuine, and if we want the genuine, and want the raw material of poetry in all its rawness, I think that raw material would at least include things like imaginary gardens with real toads in them, then you are interested in poetry. She's been sly here. She's told us, yeah, I don't like it either. And then taken us on this strange, syllabically twisted, maybe even wrenched form through stanza after stanza of meditations that sometimes seem a little hard to understand. Uh, and as she said, what we can't understand, we won't admire. And she's brought us back to saying, you are interested in poetry. She started by saying, I don't like it either. And she's brought us to, hey, maybe you do like it. Beyond liking it, maybe you're interested in it. And she's just demonstrated, and here she might be showing off a little bit, she's just demonstrated just how interesting a poem can be, giving us a poem filled with many different registers, from vivid descriptions of animals to scientific treatise register lines or phrases, and brought us all the way back around to giving us an apologia for poetry. Now, I wanna end by reading the second version of this poem. The second version of this poem, which she preferred as the version of this poem in the years leading up to her death, the second version of this poem goes like this. I too dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. If that sounded like just the first three lines of the poem, that's right. She cut the whole last four stanzas and, in fact, the last three lines of the first stanza. She basically cut it down to the first thought and then left it there. Now, why she did this is another thing that critics debate a lot. And I wonder if part of it is this poem itself is anxious about poetry. This poem itself is trying to figure out what this art form is, that this poet is still learning how to write. Marianne Moore would go on to have decades and decades longer of writing great poems. It's interesting that here, in this earlier poem, we get to see her trying to say what poetry is, trying to say 
how one might feel about it, how one should feel about it, and how one can feel about it, and in the end bring us to a place where we too want to be interested in poetry, or maybe realize we are interested in poetry. For that, I thank her. I encourage you to look up this poem and read it on the page, compare the original version with the later version, and start being interested in Marianne Moore. She's a poet who is going to be with us for a long, long time, and I hope to do more podcasts on her interesting and bizarre and sometimes barely intelligible poems. Thank you. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.